Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Typically what we do is at, at King's Cross is we typically go through books of the Bible. And last week we started a new series through the Gospel of Mark. And I actually get asked all the time, like, why we decided to call our church King's Cross, right? Why'd you call your church King's Cross? Because, I mean, it's kind of a historic name. Uh, I like the way it sounds. It's a historic name. And if you're familiar with, like, London or if you've read the Harry Potter book series, right, then your mind jumps to the King's Cross area of London, like the famous train station that they, that they have there. Then you might be thinking, that's great, but why in the world would we call this middle-class suburban church in the heart of South Orange County King's Cross? Uh, valid question. Um, I'll give you a clue. It's that if you actually press into the name King's Cross, if you press into those words, then you'll find that it actually says something beautiful about who Jesus is. Because on the one hand, the Bible calls him the King of Kings, the great King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But on the other hand, we see that he's a different kind of king. He's the kind of king who went to a cross to serve his own people. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is actually about. It's about pressing into the Scriptures to get a glimpse of who the real Jesus is. A Jesus that doesn't just hold love and power and mercy and justice as things that need to be held in tension with each other. But in Mark, we actually see how Jesus brings these things together in ways that are truer and better and more beautiful than our minds can imagine and more satisfying than our hearts could ever desire. Jesus is the King of the cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at three little verses in Mark chapter 1, on the beauty of the Trinity. So we're going to unpack on what the Trinity is, which is probably making some of you going, uh, sounds like it's going to be a really boring morning today. And uh, maybe it will be. (laughs) But here's one thing that I don't want you to miss this morning in this text, is that the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, is good news. It's beautiful news. It is essential news to the understanding of who God is and what He's done throughout history. Uh, And so we've got a lot of ground to cover in these three little verses, so we'll just dive right in. We're going to look at three questions in these verses. First, we're going to look at what is the Trinity. Then we're going to talk about why the Trinity is good and beautiful. And then we're going to finish with how this actually applies to our everyday lives. So, first question, what is the Trinity? Read our three verses with me again. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So the Trinity shows up in clear form in these three verses. You see God the Father's voice booming down from the heavens. You see God the Son getting baptized in the Jordan River. You see God the Spirit fluttering down and descending on the Son. And so I'll, I'll be honest. Like I know that the doctrine of the Trinity can be outright confusing. I know that. The doctrine of the Trinity can be outright confusing, that we have one God who exists in three persons. Like, the math doesn't add up, right? That can be confusing. But it is so essential to our faith. The Trinity is so essential. It's so unique. It's what sets apart the Christian faith from every other worldview. It's central to our understanding of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, and how it actually fleshes out in the day-to-day life of a believer. There's, a, there's an early church theologian from the 4th century named Augustine who said, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But if you try and explain it, you will lose your mind. <laughs> and my goal this morning is to basically try and avoid both hopefully do a faithful job of unpacking this essential doctrine of our historic faith. You see, because the single most fundamental and important question that you or I or King's Cross Church or really any church could ever answer is the question, who is God? That's the most important question that we have to deal with that we have to answer, that we have to reckon with. Who is God? Who is it that I believe in? Who is it that we worship? And the Bible tells us that our God, the God of the Bible, is Trinity. He's Trinitarian. Now you might be thinking like, hold up. You know, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on my door, like they tell me that the Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, they're wrong. (laughs) Like, technically, the word Trinity itself is not in the Bible, but the teaching of the Trinity is all throughout it. It's like if I showed you an equation like, uh, like A, what is it, A plus B equals C, right? Uh, Some of you are like, man, I thought I left this back in junior high, right? I mean, your teacher told you you'd have to use it one day, right? You asked, and here it is. So A plus B equals C. Like, if, if, I, if I told you to look at this equation and said, hey, this doesn't include algebra because the word algebra isn't in it, you'd be like, well, that's foolish. Obviously, this is an algebraic equation. The whole concept, the character and nature of algebra just oozes from it, right? Like, you don't need to have the word algebra in this equation to know that that's an algebraic equation. You can take your nerd hat off now. Um, You see, that's like the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Scriptures, but it's oozing on every single page throughout the whole narrative of the Scriptures. The Scriptures don't hold together. They don't make sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. 
You see, the Bible is a Trinitarian book. The scriptures tell a Trinitarian story. The gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. And so there is no good news apart from the truth that God is Father, that He's Son, and that He's Spirit. And so let's begin our, our time this morning with a definition of the Trinity. In its simplest form, the Trinity is that we have one God, one true God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. One God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now when we say three persons, by person we mean that each one thinks, speaks, and acts on their own accord. Each member of the Trinity holds personhood. Three distinct persons, but all of them are the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. And so I want to sort of unpack this uh, point by point. I'm excited. <laughs> I don't know if you are, but I'm excited. Uh, uh, so there's, let's, let's look at that first part of the phrase. There is one God. There is one God. We see that uh, one, one verse that we see that clearly in is in Deuteronomy 6. Where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. From the time that that verse was written in Deuteronomy, so many other prophets and psalmists have repeated that phrase to remind God's people that the Lord our God is one. And Paul, in the New Testament, doesn't mess around in 1 Timothy. Like, he couldn't be clearer when he says in, in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God. So we just established that there's one God, but um, let me, I want to show you now a few places that teach that each distinct person of the Trinity is also God. So let, let's look now how the Father is God. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Now this one's low-hanging fruit. Like most other religions, even some of the most crooked cults will recognize that God is Father. That's how obvious this one is. The next one, a little bit more controversial. The Son is God. The Son is God. It's because Jesus claimed this truth that He was the Son of God. That's what actually got Him killed. One of the clearest places that we see that the Son is God is in John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And so that begs the question from us, who is this Word? Well, it says, And the Word was with God. And the Word was, what does it say? God. He was in the beginning with God. So it says that whoever is this Word, whoever we call the Word, was with God the Father in the beginning, and the Word it Himself is also God. And then a few verses later, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So He became a human being in the fullest sense of the Word. And we have seen His glory, glorious from the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, the Word of God is God in the flesh. Now, who is that? Who is God in the flesh? Jesus. Right? 
Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Word, which means, according to these verses, that Jesus Christ is God. So the Father is God, the Son is God. Now, let's look at how the Spirit of God. One place that we see this is in 2 Corinthians, uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 17, which says, Now the Lord is Spirit. Very clear in that verse. So, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. All right? The Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, and they've always been God. That's what eternally exists in three persons means. So that's the Trinity. That's the Trinity. This is different from tritheism, where you've got three gods kind of hanging out in, you know, like this, the, the clouds, right? Or, or modalism, um, which is that God has like different modes that he transitions from, like God the Father in, in, is in the Old Testament, like he's kind of judgy, right? And then, and then he kind of mellowed out when he had a kid and put on his like sun hat on, right? It was a little softer. And now he's like really spiritual from Acts on, right? Puts on a different mask, turns on a different mode, manifests himself differently depending on the time or season. You see, but that's not one God, three person. That's one God, three roles. But in our text this morning, we see that all those other theories can't be true because the Father, in the single moment, we see the Father speaking from the heavens. We see the Son being baptized in the waters. We see the Holy Spirit coming down, fluttering like a dove. All three persons of the Trinity are right there in our text at the same time. And what's fascinating is at the time that Mark was writing this gospel, at the time that he was penning this narrative, there was only one other place that the Spirit of God was compared to a dove. Remember, Mark was actually, so Mark is actually the second book in, our, in, the, in the canonical New Testament. But he was the first one to write the gospel account down. And at the time that he wrote it down, there was only one other place that the Spirit of God was likened to a dove. Like later on, other writers like Matthew, Luke, John, and Paul would do the same thing, compare the Spirit to a dove. But when Mark was writing, there was only one other place that the Spirit was compared to a dove. And that is in a collection of writings called the Targums, which were basically an approved Jewish translation of the Old Testament. Now I need you guys to nerd out with me for a bit, alright? If you haven't already. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, which says, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, the Hebrew word for hovering at the end of verse 2 was really it can really be translated more like a fluttering. All right? And in the Targums, the, trans the way that they translated uh, verse 2 was they would say that the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. They would add that phrase, like a dove. And so Mark's writing this in Mark chapter 1 that the Spirit came down like a dove and all the people reading this account would, would have, they would reckon that, you know, oh, we, we remember that from Genesis 1, from creation. 
And so you have the creation according to Genesis 1, and in it you see the whole Trinity here. You see the Father creating in Genesis 1. You see the Word, the Son. You see the Spirit hovering like a dove. And the mind-blowing thing for us is, is, do you see the connection that Mark's making? Do you see the connection that Mark is making in his gospel? In Mark chapter 1, Mark is intentionally, he's deliberately drilling home the point, drawing us back to using creational language, pointing us back to the original creation. Which actually leads us to our next point. Why is the Trinity good and beautiful? Why is the Trinity good and beautiful? You see, in this passage... Mark shows us that in the same way that creation was the loving masterpiece of a triune God, so is salvation. So is redemption. So is the recreation of the world. In the same way that creation was the loving masterpiece of a triune God, so the recreation of the world would be and the salvations of sinners like you and me, and the renewal of all things that began in the days that Jesus walked the earth. Those things are just as much a loving work of the triune God. I want you to read verse 9 again with me in Mark chapter 1. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so what we see here is we've got Jesus Jesus, who is the Word. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus, who is God the Son. The King of all kings. The Lord of all lords. The one who would make demons tremble. The one who is the Word, the very voice that spun the cosmos into existence and set them in their place. He left the highest throne in heaven to walk the earth that you and I walk the very dirt that he made getting stuck in between his toes, he came into human history as the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And here in verse 9, he goes, steps onto the scene to get baptized to begin his public ministry. And then in verse 10, we see a snapshot of the relationship between God the Son and God the Spirit. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You see, during baptism, the Spirit descend, during Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends on him and gives him power. Gives him power. This is a pattern that we see all throughout scriptures, all throughout the Gospels, is that every time you see the relationship between the Jesus and the Holy Spirit in Scripture, the Spirit is always empowering Jesus, always glorifying Jesus. The Spirit is the one who empowers Jesus for his work in the world. He's the one who leads and who directs Jesus. At one point, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord was upon me so I could preach the good news. So Jesus' preaching came from the Spirit. And as, 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 he reads the gospel, as we read the Gospels, you'll see phrases talking about how Jesus was full of the Spirit as he, as he ministered, or how He was, quote, led by the Spirit. 
So that's a snapshot of the relationship that we see between the Son and the Spirit in verse 10. Then in verse 11, we see another snapshot of the relationship between the Son and the Father. Look at verse 11 with me. So we've already seen the Spirit comes down to give the Son power, and then the Father speaks, His voice booming down from heaven. What does He say? He says, You are my beloved Son. The Father speaks down and says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. That is a powerful statement. That is a powerful statement of value, of identity, of love. The Father saying to Christ, You are my Son. This is His way of emphatically declaring that Jesus is the same substance as Him. Jesus is God. He's saying Jesus is just as much God as I am. He's just as worthy of glory as I am. He's just as worthy of obedience as I am. His dominion is my dominion. He's the Son that would lead and would usher in the kingdom of God. Every time you see the Father and the Son communicating, there's this giving, there's this receiving, this honor, this respect, this glory. Every single time you see the Father and Son relating, except the cross, you see this giving and receiving relationship. Mark gives us a snapshot of that relationship here, but Jesus gives us another snapshot in John 17. Just turn there really quick. John 17, I want you to see something in the first few verses. In the first few verses of John 17, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. In other words, glorify me, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? Like, that is a rad passage. And here's where I want you to see in it. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are exchanging glory giving each other glory for all eternity. I mean, you just get this picture of, I'll glorify you. No, I'll glorify you. No, I'll glorify you more. No, I'll glorify you more. Right? No, I'll glorify you more. Right? They're just constantly glorifying each other. This picture that we have is that each one, each person in the Trinity is always serving the other. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is good news for us. Here's why it's good news for us is because the eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is completely defined by other-centeredness. No other God, no other religion can say that. Because our God, because God is Trinity, because He's three persons and one God, right? Because He's three persons and one God. He's completely and personally characterized by other-centeredness. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga says, 
The persons within God, they all exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life overflows with regard for others. C.S. Lewis called this relationship between the persons of the Trinity, he called it the divine dance. The divine dance. Have you ever seen like two people that like actually know how to dance dance, right? Like when you see Dancing with the Stars, right? The only people that get it to the end are the ones that can actually dance, that can actually learn, right? Like there's, doesn't matter how great the teacher is, you can only get so far. When you see two people moving, leading and following and just moving around, like they, they become something more, more beautiful than they could have been alone. You see, no person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around them. They're always deferring to one another. They're always glorifying each other. There's a unity amongst there in their diversity. They glorify one another, serve one another. They center on one another. The Trinity spends eternity. From eternity past to eternity future, the Trinity spends all of eternity not selfishly desiring love from the others, but selflessly giving love to the other. And that is the beauty of the Trinity. That's what makes the Trinity better. Because our God is three in one, we can truly say that God is love. He's love in and of Himself. He's the Father who loves and gives and esteems the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. He is God who is in Himself love, and as, and as three self-giving persons, He can never be anything other than love. That means that the God of the Bible is, was loved before creation. He's been loved from all eternity. This is the uniqueness of the historic Christian faith. It's essential to the gospel. No one can come up with this on their own. Who would come up with a God that doesn't have math that adds up? Three persons, but one God? That's the God we see in the Scriptures. The God we see oozing on every page. The God who is self-contained and overflowing with divine love. You see, a unipersonal God cannot be loved before creation. A unipersonal God cannot love others before creation because a unipersonal God can't love unless he has something to love. So then is he truly love? Can that God be truly love? And if you need others in order to express love, then, then love can't come from you. It has to be something other than you, that you submit to, something that transcends you. But only when we submit to what the Scriptures mysteriously and confusingly but plainly describe, that we have one God and three persons, can we truly say that God is love? And so then, he's not fundamentally about power. 
He's not fundamentally even about mercy. He's fundamentally holy in his love. With the Trinity, you have unity. You have diversity. And it rewrites the whole spectrum of how we think about who God is. Which leads us to our last and final point. Why this actually matters to the everyday Christian life. You see, on the one hand, the Trinity invites us to truly love. It informs us how we're to relate to others. You see, if we're created in the image of God, if we're created in the image and likeness of God, who is three in one, where each person is constantly giving to the others, and if we were made in his image, then we're made to reflect that image in our relationships. That means we have a model for how to be others-focused in our love, others-focused in our relationships with others. If you, do you want to have meaningful relationships? If you want to have meaningful relationships, if, if, if you want relationships that are not self-serving but, or self-preserving, but, but pouring yourself out in love, then you need to look at the Trinity. Are your relationships that you have, are they self-serving? Are they self-preserving? Or are you pouring yourself out, of, out in love? The Trinity also invites us to be in Christian community. You see, you're never going to grow in your relationship with a God like this as an individual, right? He is community. God is community. He's three in one. So you're not going to grow in your relationship and growing to be like him as an individual. You were created for community. You can't truly really benefit from the riches of the good news, the riches of the gospel without meaningful relationships in the local church. Unity and diversity Relationships with people who are different from you. Different colors of skin, different ages, different vocations, white collar, blue collar, even different, different political parties, right? Different worldviews. This is our last Sunday to actually sign up for, for home groups, which we're launching in a couple weeks. Our home groups are kind of one way, like one outward expression that we have for our, our Trinitarian conviction that God or that the Christian life should be in community. A couple more. The Trinity also invites us to be truly humble. The Trinity invites us to be humble. You see, the Father is glorifying the Son. The Son is glorying in the Father. The Spirit is the conduit between the two as they're glorifying each other. Did you know that there's never a day where Jesus is jealous of the glory, honor, and praise that's given to the Father? There's never a day that the Spirit gets tired of Jesus being preached about and being worshipped. They eternally exist in service to one another. That's why Jesus prays, Father, your will be done, your kingdom come. It's total humility. And for us, it's about living life to the glory of God and to the good of the church and the good of our neighbors. The Trinity invites us to be truly humble in our posture. The Trinity Lastly, invites us into the gospel. The Trinity invites us into the gospel. I'll unpack this one and then we'll close. You see, our greatest need, because we were, we were made in the beginning to enjoy 
the love of God, to walk in perfect communion with Him. But because of sin, that, that relationship was destroyed. And so our greatest need, the reason that our hearts are yearning, the reason that our hearts ache, the reason that we cry out to Him in lament, the reason that, that we sense that something's not right in us, is because our greatest need is to get swept up into the love of the true and triune God. Our greatest need is to get swept up in the love of the Trinity. You see, the Trinity is the breath of the gospel. It's the oxygen of the gospel. That the Father has eternally known and loved Jesus, the Word, His Son. And through the Spirit, He opens our eyes so that we can know Him too so that we can love Him too, so that we can be awakened to His life, death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means for us as sinners, and what that means for all of broken creation. We were made in the image and likeness of God. That means that at the core of who you are, at the core of who you were created to be, you were created to love, to know, and to honor this God. That's the very reason we were made. And in the beginning, God invited us into a perfect love relationship with Him, a relationship that we royally messed up when we chose sin over Him. And even when we were in our sin, even when we were in that sin, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came down from His throne to walk the earth, to hang on a cross in our place for the penalty of our sin. And when Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross, he became your sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. And at that moment, at that moment in history, at that moment on the cross, Jesus, God the Son, was cut off from his relationship with God the Father. In that moment in history, God the Son was cut off from a relationship with God the Father, a relationship that he had known and enjoyed since eternity past. That's why he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he hung there in our place, he absorbed the righteous wrath of God the Father. You see, he didn't just deflect it, he absorbed it on our behalf. What we deserve, he took a substitute for us. And three days later, he rose in triumphant victory over evil, over sin, over death. And now the same spirit that empowered Jesus in the Jordan River and, and rose Jesus from his grave now empowers those of us who have faith in the gospel and rises us, resurrects us from the death that we deserve. We were created to get swept up into the love of the triune God, to enjoy the overflowing love that exists within the Trinity. Are you swept up in that love? Do you see this? Do you, do you, do, when you hear this, this doctrine, does it become more than head knowledge and does it stir your heart? Does it stir your affections? Can you honestly say that you're swept up in this love or is God just some impersonal force out there? 
Are you part of that love, or is God just this, this deity you speak to when you're in trouble? You were created more than anything to be swept up in the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus came, to invite us in so that the love that he has enjoyed for all eternity can now be offered to us through faith in him so that sinners like us, sinners like me, sinners like you can be sons and daughters like him. And there we find redemption. There we find comfort. There we find renewal in the Father who can now say to us, this is my beloved child. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.